Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matthew Dickerson. Sit back and relax. It's time to talk technology. Greetings, Globetrotters. Wherever you are in the world, I guarantee that you're in exactly the right place just now because you've just landed on the doorstep of yet another Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. And here, with his basket brimful of Tech Talk and gifts, the guy with the AI. Welcome, Matt. It's Matthew Dickerson. How are you doing, Matt? James, can you juggle? Can I juggle? Um, yes, with a gun to my head, but only for a couple of seconds. Right. It's a three-ball juggle, is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Three-ball juggle. Yep, yep, yep. Um, and then I'll get distracted and one of those balls is going to end up in someone's lap somewhere. And the reason I ask that is it's an audio podcast we've got here, not a video one. So yeah, we're, right. we're not going to start Thank doing you so much for juggling with, me on that with knives and chainsaws or something like that. But the interesting thing is if you see someone on stage, for example, and they pull out three balls and they start juggling, if you can juggle, you say... Okay, big deal. They're juggling. If they suddenly pull out four or five, well, they do do a chain throw and a knife and a bowling ball. You think, wow, that's pretty impressive. So we're impressed when we see something that we can't do. Yeah. But if we see something that you can do, you kind of go, eh, yeah, whatever. Yeah, whatever. And I saw an interesting video, and, and you've seen the same video. This is from one of your ex-students, one of your very highly, uh, highly skilled, highly and, skilled, and capable, very yeah. motivated student. Yeah, that's right, and and high achieving ex-students. And he was talking about robotics, and one of the things that he talked about I quite liked. He, he said, "You see a robot do a, a backflip, and you go, wow, that looks pretty fantastic.' Because yeah. most of us can't just stand on the spot and do a backflip, but we see a robot pick up a glass of water." And we go, oh, I yeah. can do that. What's yeah, the big right. deal there? <laughs> but what he spoke about was the opposite. He said for yeah. a robot to do a backflip, it's a fairly basic mechanical process to do a backflip, put the robot on very level ground, yeah. make sure that it's not moving, it's not windy, all the rest of it. And it's Provided got, all the rules are kept consistent. Correct. It'll do it every time. Absolutely right. But if you say, go over there and pick up a glass of water – an instruction that would be fairly simple for even a toddler to do, mm. then a robot to do that has got to go through a whole bunch of processes to yeah. actually work that out. So that's the difficult thing for a robotics designer is to do some of those basic things that we take for granted. Yeah. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because we see a robot pick up a glass of water and we wouldn't get that excited about it, but that is a challenge, especially when you start to get to the stage as in that video where it wasn't just about the video, the actual robot using its video using its eyes it was using sensors using pressure sensitive fingers if you want to call them fingers not sure fingers is the right word but using pressure sensitive processes as well as some vision and being able to just do something as simple as pick up a glass of water well and i think one of the issues has been um where in designing robots um engineers have been trying to think like a robot and how to get things you know nice and neat for a robot to be able to do what they're trying to do now is get a robot to think like a human Mm. which is tricky (laughs) it is and i've said it before we talk about autonomous driving all sorts of things we're pretty clever. Humans yeah. are actually pretty clever. Yep. So good good on us. <laughs> <laughs> but the robots are catching up with uh, their AI, and then we've got more about that um, uh, in our episodes today, or indeed. in the episode. Um, now, as I mentioned, we've got a brimful basket. We've, uh, we'll get a load of these stories spilling over the sides. Today, we'll be soaring high into the skies with aircraft reimagined. Ringwing aircraft may one day turn heads at Mascot Airport. Now, for those of you wondering why we don't use the free energy from wave motion a little bit more, you're about to get a new party conversation, and not a moment too soon. And we're going to address the ins and outs of being a chronic update ignorer. 
are they really so important? Right, let's get the ball rolling today though with a story from the Health Tech Files. Having your temperature taken 40 years ago, we, we used to get one of those old mercury thermometers popped under the tongue or into your armpit or if you're in real trouble, right up there. In the last 20 years though, digital forehead thermometers made life so much easier, particularly if you're not into wrestling sick toddlers. Digital thermometers have taken another step forward and now no longer need a battery, folks. Matt, are you going to tell me that we're going, going full circle now and we're back to grandma just taking your temperature with the back of her wrist? <laughs> maybe. That'd be a good method, but maybe not quite as accurate. I'm not sure if grandma was accurate to 0.1 degrees Celsius. Yeah, okay, right. Maybe it was about right sort of thing. This is interesting because I, I like the concept of the batteryless process here. That was the one that captured yeah. my imagination here. And I remember watches. There were some of the rich kids at school that used to have watches that didn't have a battery and you didn't have to wind them up. Mm. Well, they probably had a battery, but a small yeah, battery. Yeah, so a small battery and that's it was right. just a magnet flowing through a coil. Yeah. Well, it was just, you had to the move The rocking backwards and forwards through a coil. Yeah, that's right. Moving moving your wrist around was the way it charged the battery up and Electromagnetic kept it induction for my year 12 class. There you go. It was using Lenz's Law, which I'm sure most kids that bought those watches didn't have any idea no, of. No, no, and they didn't need to. They didn't need to. They just knew that they moved their wrist around wrist. and it was okay. But this is exactly what the story with this one is. It's a thermometer, digital and contactless. So it does the three to five centimetres from the forehead, read the thermal energy coming from your forehead. It reads the um, waves emitted by the temporal artery, if you want to get technical about it. And in doing that, within about five centimetres of your forehead, it'll give you that temperature with a fair degree of accuracy. Mm. But what I really liked about it is that no battery concept. I don't know if you've got to shake it a bit before you use it. Oh no, the thermometer's not working. Yeah. I'll just shake it a little bit and away I go. It seemed to me that just the motion of picking it up and moving it around, it must be a very sensitive process inside that to actually get some energy from that. And then it doesn't need a lot of energy. It's only got a very basic LCD screen, so that doesn't use much power. The reading of the, th the temperature doesn't use much power, and away you go. So I like the concept. Obviously, we're going to see more of this, future outbreaks of any health problems, reading COVID temperature. COVID mark two. Yeah, I was yeah, trying to avoid. Say, I didn't want to say the C word. <laughs> That's right. I was trying to avoid the, okay. the, the word. But again, just health in general, if you can pick up some early temperature issues, and that can give us an indication that something's happening. But I love the idea. But then I started thinking about what else we might get that doesn't rely on charging it up or a big battery inside mm. or winding it up in the old days of watches and I'm sure there'll be many more things one of the frustrations that people have with smart watches is that you've got to charge them each day mm. or every couple of days maybe it'd be great if you got to the stage where your movement put enough charge into it to keep it going now there's a lot more charge used by the screen on a smart watch than there is on an LCD screen on this but maybe there's a bit of a comeback for that old moving watch and charging up concept who knows well yeah we, who knows um, with the development of superconductors we're still looking for someone to develop a room temperature superconductor that lasts for more than about a thousandth of a second. So you're saying that maybe you could do it with a smartwatch as long as you're happy to have your smartwatch at one degree Kelvin or thereabouts. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so keep sticking your uh, wrist in that <laughs> liquid helium. Um, or alternatively, we get room temperature superconductors and then... That seems there. easier, doesn't it? That's, yeah. <laughs> that seems somewhat easier. <laughs> Both are pretty tricky things to do, though. <laughs> yeah. It seems that in the current day that there is a constant arm wrestle between convenience and security. The convenience of online shopping comes with a clear risk of porch pirates stealing your stuff before you get home. Those mongrels! 
so it makes sense to have a secure box on the porch that only you and the delivery guy can get into. Matt, how are these going to work? And is it keeping the customers happy that already have them? I understand they're already out on the market. They are out on the market, a few different brands of them. But what scared me was that just in the first 10 months of 2022, I'm not sure why the first 10 months seems like a strange time frame, but mm. in the first 10 months of 2022, one in seven Americans had a package stolen from their home. One in seven. One There's in a seven. lot of Americans around. There's a lot of Americans. That's a lot of packages stolen, isn't yeah, it? Wow. I don't know whether people just hang somewhere that they know there's a person who gets regular packages delivered or people just drive around and go, oh, hold on, I just drove past somewhere. Yeah, there was something a package on the doorstep. That's right. It looks like it's got my name over it. It must have got delivered to the wrong location. Yeah, Let's right. go and do it. And particularly around Christmas as well, um, there'd think be so. a lot of packages being delivered. That's right. Now, people have got doorbells, video doorbells. They've got videos on their house. That's kind Yeah, but of, hey, stop, come back. It yeah. doesn't generally stop them, <laughs> it does, does it? Or... I've got the video of the person who stole it in a hoodie and a mask. Mm. Here, police, can you go and do something with that? And they went, mm, mm. we've got kind of people that are doing got other things more we've serious got to do. crimes. <laughs> you lost a package worth 100 bucks. Sorry, it's down the priority mm. list. So this idea is something... It's a glorified I, letterbox, isn't it? <laughs> it's a glorified letterbox that's big and secure. Yeah. And I, I suppose you'd only get something like this if you were a regular purchaser of online products. Mm. And maybe if you had a few thefts, that's usually what drives someone putting something like this in place. And there's a number of different brands of them, but basically it's a smart delivery box. You put it on your porch. Now you can attach it, physically attach it. You can bolt it down to the porch or they are just heavy. So for mm. someone that comes along with an opportunistic theft and goes, it's too heavy, I'll just leave it here, yeah. then it probably just says go to the next-door neighbour, they've got an easier package to steal, which yeah. often security is about that, just go somewhere else, go away from me. The other thing is you're probably not going to steal it unless you saw someone put something in it. Yeah, that's right. Imagine taking home one of these big heavy things that's empty. That's right. You break it open, you get home, you get the chisel out and the hammer and you break it apart and you go, oh great, I've got an empty <laughs> heavy box that's now <laughs> useless because I've broken it. Busted. That's right. So essentially, let's say you put one in, let's say you attach it to the ground and it's sitting there and then it's connected to your home Wi-Fi. You can control it remotely via your phone. Delivery person turns up, presses the doorbell or in some way, shape or form, you know that they're coming, you can either open it for them, so yes, it's now open, you can talk to them, or you can actually send out, when you get information about a delivery coming, you can send a pin to that delivery person uh -huh. and they can open it up. At this stage, the success rate of delivery people opening it up, having me supply that pin, is about 50%. So maybe ah, what happens is they turn up and they go, miss, isn't it? it is a bit hit and miss, and they go, oh, there's a box there, I guess I'll sit it on top of the box, it doesn't magically morph into the box. <laughs> it would make more sense to be a bit like a letterbox that you can put it into, but not yeah. take it out of easily, maybe that would be better. So I, I think that'd be interesting, having some sort of flap, a bit like when you buy a drink from a vending machine, mm. and it f pushes down, when you push your hand through the flap, it kind of closes off above, yeah. maybe something like that would be better, but at this stage... They've got to be opened up. Look, I saw somehow. videos of delivery guys going and putting it next to the box <laughs> or just getting to the front doorstep, pitching the, the, the thing on the front doorstep without even acknowledging that there's a box yeah. there. So that's a bit of the problem. You want to get it open some way, shape or form. But that would be, I think, the next iteration. Well, there was also a thing with because I had a camera there and it says, oh, someone's approaching. So you've got the opportunity to get to the um, to a voice thing and call out, oh, here, put, put the package into me. But these guys were running up, 
dropping the thing, taking a photo, and they were gone before yep. anyone could So you're say sitting the in class with a class full of students in front of you, yeah. keeping one eye on your phone, waiting for the delivery guy so you can capture him when he's there and say, okay, can you please put it in the box? I'll unlock it for you. Yeah, but some of these even had their own automated voice responses. Oh, right. Please okay. drop in me. Yep. But it was just still too slow for them. <laughs> it was King calling out to them, and they're already in the truck driving off. So I think the, ne- I think the next iteration will have to have the ability to put it in without any other mm. interaction. So like that flat. Well, if they become box. common, then people will be expecting to use them, I guess. Yeah, well. If people aren't expecting to use them, if they're not common yet. We also are questioning here the motivation for a delivery driver. Mm. Yes, is, that's right. Is the motivation to make sure that package is secure or have they done their job once it's at the door mm. and what happens after that is not their problem. See, if I'm going to be a delivery driver, I want to make sure that person got it. In fact, I might even ring them up later in the day. How'd you go with your package? Did you get it? Because I left it. <laughs> and your boss would say, where's your productivity, James? You've only gotten through half the delivery, but I've rung them all and made sure they're all okay. And one lady told me about a lovely sure. day she was having, and it was a really interesting chat I had to her. And I'm okay with that. <laughs> <laughs> so this is where we're going. Maybe when you go through all this trouble, maybe you just go down to a physical shop and buy the thing you're after yeah. anyway. Once you go through all this, sometimes maybe that would be easier. <laughs> It makes sense that towing a dead weight is going to cost you in fuel. Anyone with a trailer knows that. Towing a trailer that has its own drive wheels, well, that's a different story. And in an increasingly electrified world, an electric smart trailer is a step that on the surface seems to make a great deal of sense. Matt, what do you have in store for a modern forward-thinking trucker? Well, there are three and a half million trailers, and I'm talking about semi-trailer, the trailer part mm-hmm. of that, in the US. So there's a fair few out there, and they're all relying on some prime mover to move that around. Obviously, we've got some of these becoming electric, and range is a big issue there, and it really comes down to how many batteries can you stack on that prime mover mm. to be able to get this trailer taken from A to B, wherever it needs to go. So some smart cookies have said, Maybe with all that trailer, we've got a bit of potential to load it up with batteries. Oh, how many batteries could we put in that? Well, that's great. Now what do we do? Do we hook those across to the prime mover? We've got to have some common connections there. There's still a lot of prime movers out there that are running on diesel. How do we help with those? So they've actually motorised the wheels of the trailer. So that sounds great. Mm. But then you start getting a trailer pushing a prime mover. How do you control that connection? Because obviously you don't want to be driving along. Oh, a bit of a hill here. I'll start putting the brakes on the prime mover. And you've got this trailer pushing you from behind. That sounds like danger, danger, danger. So this actually has a very clever connection. And it detects how much pull there is on the trailer and it then adds some push to the trailer to the point where it will never get more than 100%. So essentially it's detecting how much pull's there and if it starts pushing to the point where it pushes the the, the prime mover forward, then it obviously backs off or it might stop altogether. Brakes applied, obviously it stops altogether and, and brakes are applied. So it sounds like a pretty clever way to do it. When you look at, for example, the prime mover being electric they're saying this will add about 160 kilometers of range to the prime mover wow. rather than load up the prime mover with more batteries there's 160 k's of range yeah, but yeah. even on diesel they're saying it can achieve about a 40 percent increase in fuel efficiency because again that prime mover that the tractor they call them in america but the prime mover is not having to do all that work and i'm thinking about mountains in particular mm. hilly roads that prime mover is dragging that that weight. It does add a little bit of extra weight, as you can imagine. So you're talking about batteries here. 
you're talking about maybe 1.8 tonnes of extra weight that's being added to the trailer. But again, you're talking about prime movers that might be total weight 30, 40, 50 with the prime mover and the trailer together. So mm. percentage-wise, it doesn't seem to add a lot. But that 1.8 tonnes of extra weight in batteries is obviously a very proactive process. We did have one that we talked about, oh gee, it would have been a month or more ago now, that talked about some solar panels on the roof of yeah, the trailer. Yeah. Again, it comes down to surface area. This particular example doesn't have that at the moment, but you can imagine loading up the trailer with solar panels and putting a lot of batteries in there, it's probably going to give some extra efficiency out of that process as well. Yeah, so it's all about um, sucking whatever energy you can out of each kilometre, to, sorry, adding whatever you can to each kilometre just to uh, get you a little bit further, a little bit more fuel efficiently. Yeah, it sounds like, to me, a, a clever idea. It sounds like something that would be sensible because you've got these trailers that are being towed around Every day there might be one trial that does 1,000 kilometres. Yeah. You start to multiply that out and start to get the efficiency there. Again, whether it be extra range or whether it be a 40% fuel efficiency increase, that's right. that can be big and dollars. the price of diesel of what it is right now, ridiculous. If yeah, you're driving right. a truck, the that's only, you. The only concern I had was that if it makes diesel much more efficient, then people might delay their change over uh, to electric or yeah, hydrogen, as we talked about. Yeah, But anyway, clever idea. And I think what we'll see at the moment, you've got customers. They're already beta testing now. Customer deliveries probably early 2025, and then they're saying that it'll be on the market widespread by 2026. Mm. And I imagine by then there'll be other companies who'll say, oh, I like that idea. As with so many organisations, they see an idea and just copy it. So there'll be more than just the one brand out there, I'm sure. Battery-powered flight. We've done a few stories on it over the past couple of years. Like cold fusion, though, it seems like it's just only just beyond our grasp. Or is it? Matt has some news about a test flight that continues a significant leap into battery-powered flight. Matt? Yeah, we've been talking a little bit about this, and there's been a few little test flights that have occurred with electric planes. And we're sort of saying that, uh, you know, 100 kilometres, no, not 100 kilometres, sorry, an hour's worth of flight. Yeah. That, um, it seems to be about the ceiling of, of what we would get. Yeah, that seems to be the range where, and I think that'll be the sweet spot, because you're really trying to balance up how far you can get with the amount of batteries you need, mm. and then the weight of those batteries. Mm. So, oh, let's go another... 50 kilometres, oh, well, that just added an extra so many kilos to the weight. That mm. just made that we didn't get Throws 50 kilometres. Throws other calculations, yeah. Exactly right. So it's that constant process. But we've got a, a company called Beta Technologies, and so they've just had an electric aircraft do a 2,000-mile flight. 2,000 miles? Yeah, not in one go. So oh, okay. when I read the headline initially, I went, wow, 2,000 miles. 2,000 miles. So I was a bit the same as you. 3.6? 3,200 kilometres. So 2,200, 2, right. times yeah, 1. Okay. 6. yeah, so 3,200 kilometres, that's not too bad. But again, they had to do it in a few steps. But they were demonstrating this for the US Air Force. And the US Air Force is very interested in some electric aircraft, not so much for fighter jets, but they're more for transportation, cargo transportation. And they believe there's a a good example there where they can use some of these. So they're doing some testing now. Uh, So when the airport starts testing, you start to think, well, that's good. They're going to do some pretty rigorous testing and they're in pretty extreme conditions. Mm. I'd be pretty comfortable if the Air Force was using a plane for particular scenarios if they're in u- using that in everyday flight, I'd be thinking, well, for commercial flight, I'd be pretty comfortable with that because mm. I think the Air Force is not going to take on a dud. So they're doing some testing at the moment. They're collecting lots of flight data, lots of ground data, and they're 
testing the plane under a variety of conditions. So that's obviously fantastic. It's got a a 50-foot wing. It's got two pilot seats and obviously cargo space. So this is designed really for cargo rather than designed for passenger. But again, once you've got the bones of an aircraft there, you can soon Mm. change around the configuration of it. You've got two variations of this particular aircraft by Beta. One is a vertical takeoff and landing, and one's a conventional takeoff and landing. I didn't know the term CTOL, so VTOL I've heard before, vertical takeoff and landing, but I've never heard the term CTOL. But I did actually think, well, if you've got VTOL, what's the alternative? What's one that does a normal, a longer runway? And so they're now calling that CTOL, conventional takeoff and landings. (laughs) (laughs) So you've almost had to do an, an acronym to come up, or initialism in this case, to come up with something that explains how it's always been done rather than the new way it's been mm. done. So they've got two variants, one that does use a runway to take off and one that takes off vertically and then obviously converts to normal horizontal flight. We've also got Joby Aviation. We talked about those before. Yeah, that's right. They've got an electric VTOL aircraft and they've been doing some testing. And again, they've been working with Air Force with that particular bit of testing. So there's a fair bit happening there. And as much as we look to talk about fusion as the solution to climate change, I think we're decades away from getting mm. fusion going. But with electric aircraft, you and I, James, in the next decade, will fly on an electric aircraft. Well, they say never say never when you're talking about the future, like future technology and whatnot. And yeah. I, I've been talking with engineers who are in industries that are all, all about designing new designs for the future. And they've just poo-pooed the whole idea of electric flight. They just said, you know, the battery's just going to get too heavy and da-da-da-da. Yeah, well... But, I mean, that's... In that, they're dismissing, uh, you know, developments in technology themselves. It just seems... Yeah, uh, I don't know. Uh, And maybe there will be more hydrogen. We do talk about hydrogen a little bit. Maybe there will be more hydrogen. But I, I would say, I'm happy to make that statement... That within the next 10 years, you and I will have flown on an electric aircraft for some short-haul flight. I'm Mm. pretty sure we won't fly on that across to America, but I'm pretty sure within Australia somewhere, we'll have flown on an electric aircraft. But I'm assuming that the American Air Force, they've done that 3,200-kilometre flight there, 2,000 miles. Um, It wasn't in one hit, but was it only in hour-long jumps? Uh, No, no, it was a bit longer than that. And again, they've got a variety of aircraft bases there or Air Mm. Force bases there. So... uh, Again, if you're delivering some cargo somewhere, mm. even now I've seen videos where the Air Force is delivering some bit of cargo somewhere and they do do it in hops now because mm. it might be a particularly large piece of cargo or it might be a particularly large plane that they'd rather load up with cargo rather than fuel. So it's not unusual if you were taking something from A to B that you might go on a couple of hops mm. depending on the efficiency and really comes down to what the Air Force is trying to achieve out of this. Do they want electric aircraft because they think that'll be easier in a battlefield to be able to get an electric aircraft in and out, vertical takeoff and landing sounds like a pretty good way to get into a battlefield rather than find a runway somewhere. Well, and the logistics of getting enough fuel in for any of your machinery yeah. um, is enormous. Well, I've been dealing with that for, for centuries now. But um, but uh, if you don't have to worry so much about getting the fuel. That's right. If you can work it some other way to get power to it, whatever way you might have, then that sounds pretty attractive. So there's a reason... The Air Force is testing it. They're not testing it because they've got nothing else better to do. Mm. They're testing it because they can see some sort of future for electric aircraft. Doing what I do, I I find myself in uh, as a part of a lot of conversations about future energy sources and about solving big global problems uh, like access to clean, fresh water for all. 
We talk about the fun stuff at the parties I go to. Desalination seems to be a common solution to where we'll get our water from. Uh, that's our fresh and clean water. Uh, but it's such an energy-hungry solution. And then wave power has been something that I remember talking about in classes 25 years ago, but it still is yet to really take off as a viable broad-scale energy solution. Well, it's taken some clever Canadians to smush these two ideas together. That's wave power and coming up with clean, fresh water. And it's taken some clever Canadians to do this, to come up with some tech that might just change the world forever, Matt. It might change the world forever. We do need more drinking water, more potable water. It's Potable water, yeah, for cleaning. uh, That's a big one. For cooking, for so many reasons, we need clean, fresh water. And there's such a small supply in the world when we look at all the water that's available. Correct, that's right. And we've got a bunch of ocean. So we seem to have an excess supply of water in our oceans around the world. So why don't we just drink that? Quite a bit of ocean, isn't there? There is. There seems to be enough to get around and we could probably use that. At the moment, of our world population, about 300 million people rely on desalinated water and there's 21,000 plants that are doing that. But as you said, quite correctly, it's a very energy-intensive process. So trying to produce all that desal water, having desal plants, etc., is a fairly energy-intensive process. So not great. If you can do it in some other ways or get it cleaner water to begin with, that's great. But are there better ways to do it? And that's exactly what you're talking about here with this method. You've got some Canadians that have produced a plant, a desal plant, that sits in the ocean, great, Mm. good source of water, and uses wave power to actually generate the the clean water, the the drinking water. So So yeah, wave power is something that I remember talking about, you know, when I first started teaching, um, saying, oh, here's a renewable way of um, gaining your energy. But uh, we haven't really seen it develop. No, it it was going to be one of those ways we're going to produce electricity, wasn't it? But it doesn't seem to have taken off as well. And that's fine. There's different methods people come up with and then the best ones come out. But this uses a membrane system and that membrane is powered exclusively by wave movement. And the buoys actually convert that wave energy into mechanical forces, which then operates the desal process. Mm. So it does need one metre high waves to function. So out in the middle of the ocean, maybe near the shore, one metre high, it's not everywhere there's one metre high waves, no, but right. I imagine there'd be enough places you could find constant waves of a metre. Talk to any surfers, they'd say, we know a certain spot there's always one <laughs> metre wave, so maybe they need to get some surfers well, maybe, involved. Or maybe they'd uh, not get the surfers involved because they want the space for surfing. Or maybe too, that, yeah. that might be right. So one of the things, if you if you get these, there's three different sizes they've got, and so they're basically producing these commercially, and the largest model could produce 49,000 litres of water per day, Mm. which seems like a reasonable amount of water. I don't know what the average human needs to use. I'm not talking about drinking. I'm talking about in their household usage, for example. So the World Health Organization says you need 20 litres. Every human needs 20 litres of fresh water per day. That's what they need. So that's for more than drinking, obviously, because they're not going to drink 20 litres. That's for living. cooking, yeah, whatever living they do. Um, uh, Watering plants as well. Yep. But that's per day, per person. Yeah, right. And that's the bare minimum. I'd bare imagine minimum. sitting here where we are, we would all use more than 20 litres per day. Absolutely. Yeah. You just time how long it takes to fill a bucket of water from your shower head. That's right. Yeah. And, I, and I know my daughters spend more than five <laughs> seconds in the shower. <laughs> um, so 49,000 litres a day in a situation where you were trying to survive on the bare minimum is obviously going to keep a lot of people going. But having these around 
in, say, for example, out in the ocean nearby to the shore, I think would make sense. But again, it's just more ways to produce clean water. And that is going to be a huge problem for us as we go forward. Our population keeps growing. We seem to be struggling with feeding and putting enough clean water or having that available for yeah. our humans on this planet. And if we can work out better ways to do it, that sounds like a fantastic concept. Well, there's one futurist I heard predicting that um, that you know wars will be fought over getting fresh water. But if we've got solutions like desalination that are viable mm. using wave power, yeah, well, it sounds pretty clever. Pressure, it? it takes a lot of pressure off. Just how diligent are you in updating your devices? Are you one to ensure that you follow all the directions dutifully every time with every app? Are you a bit more easy come, easy go and just go with your heart each time an update is suggested? Take it as a suggestion rather than a rule. Or are you a conscientious objector, a stubborn, paranoid conspiracy theorist who is adamant that the updates are just designed to slowly make your device obsolete so that you'll just buy a new device every two years? Matt. Updates, do I or don't I? <laughs> it's an interesting one. I had a client once who would not, no matter what we told them, would not put software updates on their computer system. And it was one of those things that you would talk about all the good reasons you do it, mm. new features, security vulnerabilities, all sorts of things. It was, mm-hmm. no, it's working now. I don't want to change it. And then at some stage, there was a bit of an issue where across the world we saw some software update that caused some issues and I got a phone call. Ah, See, see, I told you I don't want to do those updates. It's like, oh, that was one example that went the other way. But here I'll give you 50 examples where you should have done the updates. So, But to a degree, I also, you know, it's when you get those updates and they change the interface. So (laughs) everything you've got to rework out how you look at this app or whatever um, and, and rediscover it. There's that, that and even in even in in your Tesla, then sometimes you get an update which you just go, yeah, sure, whatever, and then where's that thing gone now? I used yes. to have the button there, yeah, and it's gone. Say, Why did you change that? And sometimes I think some software engineers go, well, we better make it obvious we've made a change, so we better change the interface. We better make sure people realise yeah. they've got a new version of the software now. But obviously, there are reasons that updates occur, and given the fact that. Most of these updates, most of these software updates are done for free. So whether it be your phone or your computer, it's there's a new update available, do it for free. So you can take away the cynical attitude that says, well, they're only doing that to make me buy a new one of whatever. Mm. They're doing it to you for free. So they're obviously trying to improve that product and keep you loyal to their product, for example. But one of the interesting parts of this is that there is some psychological preference for familiarity versus the fear of new complexity. So yeah. so the reason people update is not usually linked to the update itself. It's the psychology of how that person's made up, where they are yeah. on the, the scale in terms of early adopters through to laggards. It's that whole concept <laughs> about where they go. And it's interesting because I normally sign up to the beta concept of you'll get the beta version of this and you know there's going to be some issues there but I want those latest features as quick as I possibly can. What new cool things can I do? And every now and again the update comes through and something doesn't work and you go okay that's right I'll live with that. But some people that's a major stress point for them. They want everyone else to have those problems which is why you've got people out there beta testers. No more problems. That's right. And then they'll take the update. Well then they'll think think about it. (laughs) Yeah that's right. But by then we've we've progressed on to the next level and da 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 and so they've got a whole new set of things that you know they've got to update on. That's right. And the logic is even with phones for example some people might keep an older version of a phone and they'll say well 
does what I need it to do, mm. so why do I need that new phone? Well, it's got a better camera, or it does this faster. So, oh, well, this one seems to work for me, yep. and that's fine. We're talking to the Nokia flip phone face, aren't we? <laughs> we are indeed. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and so there are, there are a range of issues there, and so getting that happy balance, I suppose, is the advice here. If you hold off forever, you're probably going to expose your device computer, phone, whatever it might be, to extra vulnerabilities, which maybe isn't the greatest idea. If you jump on the latest thing as soon as you possibly can, you're probably going to have some issues sometimes where maybe some of those, maybe bugs haven't been worked mm. out, or maybe some of the variety of circumstances that they're trying to do with beta testing haven't been worked out. So maybe waiting a little bit until you're a few weeks after, maybe a month after, till any of those problems, if you want to go that path. Again, personally, but I like the But you've forgotten that there's even a, an update to do there. Possibly. And unless the thing's reminding you, hey, I've got this update you haven't done yet. Well, I get a bit annoyed, a bit of OCD here, when I see my settings on my phone that's got a little red number one next to oh. it. There's something I've got to do, I've yeah. got to do. So I can't <laughs> handle that for too long. So that's my reminder to do an update if I haven't done it in the first five milliseconds yeah, of it being you, available. The other problem I have is if I read about, in doing my research, read about some new feature on the phone, I go and try it out. Hold on, oh, I've got to get the new update to get that. I bet, oh, it's not available in Australia yet. Damn, I've got to wait for it. So I'm looking for those new features to play around with them and see how they work. Well, I'm, I'm more of a... Um uh, so I'll, I'll update sometimes, but I won't update other times. And if they want to update right now, oh, probably not going to take it <laughs> because too much pressure. Oh, yeah, no, no. Well, I'm probably using the phone for something else at the time. And um, yeah, can we just wait? So I'm all for scheduling updates. I'm okay for that if yeah, they're right. willing to do it at two o'clock in the morning. Yep, yep. But uh, if I'm using the phone or if I'm driving the car or whatever, well, I'm not do it until. To give you an idea, about forty percent of adults do the automatic update on their smartphone. Mm -hmm. So that's it comes up and says, I'm going to update tonight, and they just let it happen. That means there's 60% of people who don't. Exactly right. I thought the same. I thought it was not too bad, and then I started thinking, hold on, that's a fair few people who say, that's no, do not automatically update my phone. Thanks so much. I'll do it when I'm good and ready, when I can see some reason to do it. It's an interesting one. So mm. at the next party you're at, when you're chatting about these highly important things, just get a bit of a quiz, a bit of a straw poll and say, who does want to make updates around there and see if it's about that 40%. Doing lunch tomorrow. How are you feeling about AI these days, folks? Are you all up for embracing our new digital overlords? Are you resigned to defeat or are you gathering up your virtual pitchforks and flaming torches in defiance? One thing is for sure, AI is gathering steam and reshaping how things are done in the age of information. Matt, what are your thoughts? <laughs> My thoughts are, hold on. <laughs> <laughs> hold on to that, folks. We're going for a ride. That's right. Strap in the seatbelt. Hold on to that. <laughs> Let's see where this takes us. <laughs> and I don't know where it's going to take us. It's going yeah. to be pretty interesting. But there's certainly a lot of development. If we look at chat yeah, GPT. Yeah, it's undeniable. Yeah. It's, and it's not stopping. It's not stopping. No, that's right. So if you look at chat GPT, more than 100 million people are already using that mm. weekly. Mm. So that's pretty incredible. You've got some development happening with chat GPT, though, where they've got this feature. They're going to create special purpose AI apps. So if you're a developer, you can take the bare bones of chat GPT and you can customize it. You can say... I really want something that focuses on should you do updates on your mobile devices and then create a little chatbot based around the information there. Yeah. I don't actually know how it's going to work yet, but the uh, idea is that what ChatGPT is doing is trying to get more and more people hooked onto this. So you might think, oh, ChatGPT, that's not for me. But then there might be a special little 
bot that's being created by someone that focuses on something that you're interested in. You might be interested in Formula One. And so they create a chatbot that gives you every bit of information about Formula One in great detail using the natural language tool of ChatGPT. So they're trying to create customizations of it to really get people in. And they go, oh, I'm interested in Formula One. I want to know about every individual feature, record, whatever it might be. AI for all its other sins. I'll just dive into it for this. Correct, yeah. Which is the gateway to opening up for so many other things. But anyway. But no, you're spot on. So get people hooked onto something they're interested in, get people hooked on mm. something they're focused on, and then they might start to expand further from that. So for the chronically paranoid, we're not helping them at all right now. <laughs> no, no, this is not the place to be <laughs> if you're paranoid about AI, definitely not. So that's something that they're focusing on. So custom GPT technology I don't know how difficult it is to create your own set, your own custom GPT, and I haven't actually played with that at this stage. I am interested to have a look at that, Mm. but that's certainly something where they're headed. Of course, you've got Elon Musk, who's got their AI startup called XAI, and they've got Grok. So Grok is their Siri, if you like. And of course, Elon Musk wants to do things just that little bit differently. So Grok has supposedly been created within weeks. I mean, ChatGPT has got a little bit more time worked on that, but it gives you answers with a bit of attitude, a bit of the Ah. Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy humour thrown in, for example. So it'll give you information, but it'll give you information with sarcasm, give you information (laughs) with with that attitude. And again, Elon Musk... You idiot. (laughs) I don't even know. That's right. A brain the size of a planet and I'm here opening (laughs) doors, that sort of thing. So... There's a lot of competition out there. Obviously, you've got Google with Bard working on theirs. You've got OpenAI with ChatGPT. That seems to be leading the race at the moment. But then Elon Musk, you can never write Elon Musk off for anything that he's doing. So he's come along with his XAI. So suddenly, you've got this great competition. Where's it all going to end? Are they all going to start fighting each other? I always love when you ask one of the various assistants what they think of the other assistant and they're all very politically correct and they don't uh-huh. they, they don't have a <laughs> negative opinion about any other assistants and I'm sure if you ask ChatGPT what they thought of Grok you'd get a very straight down the line answer they're not going to talk negatively about their competition but yeah if you're paranoid yeah. go and hide in the corner somewhere now and start quivering <laughs> I used to think of myself as being a bit of a dab hand at building paper aeroplanes, and I reckon that the that I had the dart-shaped plane down to a fine art by mid-high school. And then someone showed up to a competition with a plane that was just essentially a couple of paper cylinders, and it ended everything for me. That was a crap day. The right wing, sorry, the ring wing design in avionics has been somewhat of a holy grail. The paper plane example suggests that it's by far a more efficient design. But getting it to work on a commercial airliner scale has been tricky to say the least. But perhaps the folks at Lockheed are getting close to an answer. Matt, you've got some details here though? Yeah, it's interesting. I was at a bike conference years ago and there was a bike designer or an organisation that was doing bike designs there and they talked about the revolution that carbon fibre created. Before carbon fibre came along with bikes, they were always done in a double triangle. You had your main mm. triangle for the main body and you had your rear triangle to connect to the rear wheel. And they said for the strength that they were using with various products, be it chrome, molly or steel for a lot of bikes or aluminium, you needed that strength in there. So that was where you did the double triangle. That was every bike was just a variation mm. of that. And then carbon fibre came along. A new material, material science, that's the future, you mm. keep telling us. Rewrite uh, the rules. And they did that. And so this bike 
company said that they hired someone that was a design expert that didn't know much about bikes. And when they were talking about a couple of things, she Never said, seen a bike before. Probably seen a bike, <laughs> but, but didn't know much about it. And they said something, and the, she said, what's the bottom bracket? And they went, wow, we've got someone here. Because anyone who's involved in bikes would know the bottom mm. bracket is where the pedals are, but someone that wasn't really focused on bikes, bottom bracket, whatever, never heard of that. So they basically said, we've now got some handlebars, a seat, pedals, and some wheels. Inside that, you go for it, because carbon fibre mm. changed the rules. You could change how you design it. You could have curves. You could have different shapes, because carbon fibre was so strong. Now, when we look at this Lockheed ring-wing revolution potential, Back in the 80s, there was a concept of the ring wing. That was obviously where your um, friend, I'll mm. say, in inverted commas, colleague with the cylindrical plane, rival, okay, they obviously saw this design back from the 80s and said, that's how I'm going to make my paper aeroplane. Mm. Now, they did try some of those, but it didn't quite work. They couldn't get it to work quite properly, so they kind of gave up on it. But now, jump forward, we've got a few advantages. We've got incredible material science, mm. we've got incredible design concepts, and you can test so many of these on the computer. You don't need to build a little model and then go into a wind tunnel and do it the old-fashioned way. You can put it into a computer, but then it gets better than that. You can say, here's kind of what I'm trying to work on. Now, I'll give that to AI Go and do a bazillion designs. I'm sure that's the term they use. <laughs> go and do a bazillion different designs and then test those designs and come back to me and tell me what works. And we've seen that exact same concept with some materials where they've tried different structures in materials and then do some testing on those materials, but they can do them so quickly. So mm. that's exactly what we're talking about. Now, the ring wing, go and Google it, folks, and just look at the Lockheed ring wing. It looks really weird, it but does, doesn't it could it? become the norm. It could be. And I looked at that, and I was thinking, where does it get its lift from? It needs some horizontal surface area to get some lift to actually lift the plane up. But there's obviously enough in the ring wing as it goes around. So to give you an idea, the wingspan, and I apologise for the imperial measurements here, the wingspan was 170 feet and the wing height was 75 feet. Now that also might create some problems with some airports because they're not designed for huge height in aircraft, more width in aircraft. Mm. But I think they'll be able to get around that if they come up with it. But supposedly... This is a much more efficient way to fly. You get less drag with a ring wing, mm. so you're able to fly, you get the lift that you need, and not the drag, so create more efficiency. Uh, so the testing they're doing at the moment is they're looking at maybe Lockheed, maybe NASA, doing some work on this old design. Someone obviously pulled out of a drawer somewhere and said, what about this? No, that didn't work 40 years ago. Well, hold on, will it work now? Yeah, so I don't wow. know that anyone's definitely going to produce this tomorrow, but just keep an eye out for it because it is one of those things that maybe with modern technology we can actually do something with it. In staff rooms of schools the world over, there is division about the place of AI in the classroom. In a world where artificial intelligence is not just sci-fi fantasy, teachers are playing a real game of catch-up with GPT, or chat GPT as I should say. The question is, is AI a cheat code or is it actually a very handy teaching tool? Matt, what's your take on all of this? Oh, You're see, an outsider. I think, I think we should be using it as much as we possibly can. I saw a really interesting video of a young kid saying, we are never going to be without AI. Yeah. So is it, a, is it appropriate to punish us for using it? Yeah, and that's kind of where I'm at, that if you said to a builder – you can't use a nail gun. You've got to use a hammer mm. and build the house with a hammer rather than a nail gun. They'd say, why? 
It's more yeah. efficient to use a nail gun. No. Sure, I might lose the skill of swinging a hammer, but yeah, when you've got to I, go back to first principles. When am I realistically ever going to swing a hammer? Mm. Now, that's a very simplistic example, but no, AI, that's right. But but in in schools where we're trying to assess students on their skills, right? And so we go back to first principles. Can they do this? Can they do that? Da 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 da. But if they don't need to use the hammer, yeah. And they've got the nail gun. We, yeah, Go they've for got it. a nail gun. Yeah, they kind of... So the problem I have is one thing we've talked before about, you've got a calculator. So I don't need to know how to do long division yeah. anymore. Long division's a bit long complicated division. and clumsy. Square just, roots, yeah, any of that sort of stuff. I can just punch in the calculator, but... The fact that I don't know how to use a slide rule... <laughs> does that like matter? my father used when he was going through school. But the, the point that you've made, which I think is absolutely valid, is... If I get an answer on the calculator, I want to have some vague idea that maybe it's in the ballpark mm, mm-hmm. rather than there's a number that I'll blindly write down. Yeah. And I watched it's an, not a magic box. That's right. I watched an air crash investigation once, and the reason the plane crashed in that one, because they obviously analyze and give you the answers to why it crashed, was because they did a conversion between imperial and metric for when they're loading the fuel up. And they got it wrong by a factor of a, a zero, an extra oh, zero was in wow. there. And the pilot or pilots probably, didn't go, oh, hold on, that doesn't seem like enough fuel to get me where I've got to get to. Yeah. It was just punch in, someone missed a zero on the punch in the calculator, and, yep, that's how much fuel we need. Load it up, Jimmy. And that Goodness was man. the end of that plane. So having a practical concept, just being able to do a mental calculation to get in the ballpark, I think is important. Mm. So you think about that, in chat GPT, you get an answer. We know we've play with it we've looked at it we know that the answers aren't always 100 percent accurate mm. so you you probably want to apply a bit of common sense to that and i've done it i've talked about it before that i go are you sure that's right because i had the answer at more like this oh yes i'm sorry here's the correct answer yeah now we've got yeah. to stop using chat gbt like a magic box that spits out the right answer yeah but should we be using it and, and there was one example i found where there was a high school chemistry teacher and he uses it as an assistant in his teaching. So when he's trying to explain a difficult concept, he'll ask ChatGPT for the explanation because he figures that that might give the information in a accurate, hopefully accurate form, mm. but in an easy enough to understand form that the students go, oh, yep, yeah, okay, that makes sense. It's all about efficiency as well. When they're sitting at home and they're stuck on a problem, mm. well, they can be stuck on that problem or they can ask ChatGPT and hopefully they pick up some learnings from asking about that problem. Most of the schools in the US I looked at you're allowed to use it for assessments, but not exams. So you can't sit in the exam and just say, give me the answer, because you think that probably yeah. would be going a bit too far. You're not really testing the students for much then if, you, if you're using then exams. the question further to that is, okay, why have exams without ChatGPT? Because... If you're going to use it... If, yeah, how does this mirror uh, life outside of uh, the school environment? So maybe forget about exams and everything's done by assessment. And then, and then uh, see how ChatGPT goes. Yeah. <laughs> what are we actually measuring of a student's ability? <laughs> Their ability to use the tools that are supplied to them. That's right. And maybe that's okay. Mm. Uh, are we measuring those tools or measuring those ability to use tools? Because that's what happens in the real world. Well, we'd have to be then measuring their ability to be discerning in working out when ChatGPT or their calculator gets it wrong. You would also have to be assessing their ability to produce high quality work because you'd expect yeah. the work to be of higher quality that's right. when you've got a tool like ChatGPT to help you. But what's the difference? If you said to a student 30 years ago, go and use the Encyclopedia Britannica to research some concept, yeah. then they're there, they're copying out text from the Encyclopedia Britannica, mm. they're writing all that 
and do they fully understand it all? They've done the research. So it's that ability to find the information mm. rather than the ability just to know that information. Mm. So it's a changing world. But we don't have to remember stuff anymore. That's the thing that I find. I used to know hundreds of phone numbers. I used to be a, a walking phone book. And now you just go, I just still remember some phone numbers, but you go straight to your phone because yeah, you don't I care would anymore. Have maybe two phone numbers that I can remember. <laughs> like you, I was good with phone numbers. Yeah. yeah. But, yeah. So, but do we need to waste our brain space with that no, anymore? Maybe use something else. So it's changing. Yeah. Where is it going to end? I don't know. Where are teachers going to find the right balance? I don't know that either. And the variety, I suppose. Some teachers in some schools would embrace. Mm. They're the ones that do their iOS updates straight away. Mm. The ones that mightn't embrace are the ones that say, we'll wait till everyone else gets those operating system updates right and then we'll go and embrace those. Well, there are elements of the science syllabus that tell us um, that direct us to be discerning researchers. Mm. And I think that still has scope in a world with chat GPT. Yeah. Yeah. So that's going to be the thing. This is uh, we've got to stop treating it like a magic box that gives us the right answer. We know that there was a lawyer in New York that got caught out mm. in a big way um, for having precedents that weren't real. Um, and uh, yeah, I just I think that we're going to have to teach students how to use it as a tool, but then question it. I can see a great fun debate. Our Rotary Club does an annual debate against another Rotary Club. I can see this being a really interesting and fun debate with maybe some big implications, but just chat GPT should be used in the classroom as a debate topic. Go for it. There's your Uh 10 minutes each per speaker. Have some fun with that because I can see that being a really interesting debate. But here's the other part. Maybe if we use chat GPT, students use chat GPT, maybe we'll actually advance our discovery the mm. students will actually discover things quicker because they're not wasting their time, and that sounds too harsh. They're not spending their time on just learning stuff, learning concepts they've got to regurgitate. Yeah. They're really having to work on how do I analyse this? How do I add to this knowledge that's already out there yeah. and then continue to do that? That might happen quicker. Um, and, well, the rate that we double our knowledge base has been amazing to, to start off with in mm. recent years. I'm just thinking that um, the industrial age finished and we started the age of information Mm. when we uh, started being able to access information so quickly. I think we've just entered a new age, and that is of AI and robotics. Here today, folks, you've heard it. There's a new age that we've entered. It's called the AI age. AI And, um, well, good luck to anyone who's going to try and stop it. (laughs) That's right. I think that's the thing, isn't it? Yeah. All right, and with the sirens and alarms getting louder and louder in the background, that's our cue to finish up and maybe move on for the day. That's all we have for you at Tech Talk. Thanks for illuminating our collective paths once again, Matt. And my pleasure. And I am going off now to work on some paper aeroplane designs. I'm interested yeah. to see whether I can get that cylinder design that you talked about. Because I was the dart design as well. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to see that cylinder design. And I was adamant about darts. I was a dart purist. <laughs> it was all right. about the, the neatness of the folds <laughs> and the symmetry. You had to have them very crisp, those folds, didn't you? And when this kid showed up and he just rolled a piece of paper with I, a bit of sticky tape. I was even known to use a stapler sometimes on those folds to keep the, everything crisp and tight together and maybe a bit of double-sided sticky tape down the middle uh, of it. A4 paper and that was it for me. Right. <laughs> you are a purist. <laughs> Look, I'm off to now uh, go and reconsider my life choices and maybe run a couple of overdue updates just for the gigs. In the meantime, thank you one and all for your part in tagging along with our humble podcast. It's a fantastic thing to share our conversations with a broader audience and we're stoked that you decided to tune in today. My name is James Eddy. Matt and I will be back in another week's time with more stories from the future. And we hope to catch you in good health then. In the meantime, take care and we'll see you soon.